used. Takes a little bit for me. My name is Cyrus. I'm the pastor, lead pastor here. We have a few pastors. And uh, I'm going to be talking to you today. We do our sermon first. So that's it's usually unusual for people. But we like it, at least so far. We're really young. We're just getting started. Uh, we're just past our two-month mark. And, uh, yeah, we like doing the, uh, the sermon first because... No, it just has a nice flow, and it's nice to end with a focus on worship, kind of meeting God. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention today was um, two things. One, Natasha's gone, but it's her 40th birthday. So, you know, let's just hold off on the applause. Maybe when she gets back later during worship or something, we'll give her a round of applause. So that's kind of fun for us. We've been, I've been trying to be a good husband, uh, dealing with a wife who's doing her 40th I probably failed miserably, but uh, uh, we went to Thermea, and I think that did something, so that was good. And also, I wanted to say that we have some news, um, well, just a kind of an update on our family. Uh, apparently, I don't get the paper, but apparently my parents were on the front page of the free press, um, and the Candace House, I don't know, it seems like it's always opening, but I think it actually opened. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so it's actually open now, and, you know, it's becoming a thing. Uh, and so uh, Cliff and Wilma were kind of doing their, uh, their uh, kind of honorary place in that. I don't think they're that involved in it uh, anymore, um, but they certainly were the kind of part of the vision for that, and uh, they're trying to obviously support it and do their part. But they are always talking about how it's not really us. Uh, there's so many other people who are involved now who are doing all the hard work around that. And so uh, we're just blessed that, uh, that uh, something that our family has done is made a difference in the city to some degree. And we're just excited to be a part of that and want to bless that. Um, so that's good news, and maybe we need some good news, because today I'm talking about demons. Uh, yeah. I, my big uh, conflict this week was whether to post that on the internet or not. <laughs> I went back and forth, I don't know, a little gun-shy, I think, of posting stuff on the internet now. But anyway, we're talking about demons. I had a lot of trouble with this sermon, which was interesting, so we'll see how it ends up. Uh, but I had a lot of distractions and... Just, I, it was funny, I was going over my sermon with Natasha yesterday, which has become kind of our tradition, and uh, our new tradition, and she said, like, I'm watching you get sick as you go over it, and I was just, like, getting stuffed up, and I was, like, talking about how tired I was, and, and I was getting Kleenex, and she's like, I'm just watching you become ill in front of me as you go over the sermon, and then after I was done going over, with, over it, I started to feel better, and um, so let's just pray over this. Because uh, I don't think that the devil wants us to hear it. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to understand the spiritual realities around us so that we can be prepared and uh, that, we, um, that we can uh, fight with knowledge of you and uh, how you actually operate and how you want us to operate in your kingdom. And I just pray that any demonic presence... Um, that's over this kind of time together, that it would just go right now in the name of Jesus. Um, and that you would just open up the air here for us to hear and to speak and to learn, uh, learn about the dynamics that you created to help us become stronger. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm just going to start with a small story of kind of one of our clear demonic kind of encounters. We've had a number, especially since we started the spirit room, just in general, but this was kind of a more personal one that happened a few years ago, I guess now. So uh, we were in a season of just real, it was just a really glorious season in our lives where we were spending, we had time, because I was a student, and uh, we didn't have any kids yet, and so we just spent long hours in prayer in our house, and we were just kind of walking into the prophetic and learning more about that. We were kind of prophetic evangelists. We were like taking everybody that we knew and didn't know and having them over and making them aware of how God can speak. And uh, one of these encounters, we were uh, praying for a friend who we actually were spending a lot of time praying uh, with and, and sometimes for. And in this time, we were 
praying for his back. He had this chronic back issue. He couldn't really even tie his shoelaces, uh, at least not easily. And uh, so we were praying for his back. His back had been prayed for many times before. And after we prayed for him this time, um, my understanding, I haven't talked with him in a while, so we're relying on my memory, which isn't always great. My, my memory of it was that it was the first time, I think, that he had been healed. There may have been one other time. But anyway, it was significant, it was rare, and he was able to kind of move, and he was able to tie his shoelaces. I think he had, like, a little bit of pain, but not the kind of complete immobility or, like, or the significant pain, I guess I should say, that he was having before. So we were celebrating, and I'm really happy, and he was testing it out and doing all kinds of things. And uh, then, I don't know exactly how long it was later, it was probably a few weeks later, maybe even a couple of months, he came back and he talked about this encounter that he had. And he had been in his bed, if my memory serves, and um, he'd been going to sleep, uh, I think, and he had looked up uh, to the side and he had seen this shadow. And the shadow came towards him and jumped on his back and his back immediately regained, he was completely lost his healing. He completely returned to his previous in-pain state that he had been in before the healing. During the healing itself, we hadn't noticed anything demonic at that time. I don't even think we had done any like demon prayers. It wasn't really as much on our radar. Um, but it was clear to us after we'd had that, after he talked about that, it was like, wow, this was uh, you know, really a, a demonic thing. We tried some things after that. We were trying to be like... Acts, and we ended up like thinking he had to get all kinds of water poured on him or something like that. So we took the hose to him, <laughs> and uh, it didn't work, and it ended up almost giving him hypothermia. <laughs> anyway, we were being faithful, right? Uh, welcome to uh, one of our prayer meetings, right? So those are on Wednesday nights. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it. It's so fun. Okay. So I want to talk about demon possession um, a little bit, and kind of how that relates to people who aren't Christian, but primarily how it relates to uh, you when you're a Christian. Um, so there's this debate, and I'm going to make a comment on the debate, but I'm not going to answer or like try to take a strong position on it. And that's like, if you're a Christian, can a demon be in you, or a demon, or is the demon kind of outside of you? Right? There's this debate. There's a whole thing about whether demons exist. I'm just going to sleep over that and just assume that we all believe that demons exist. If that's an issue, um, that might be another talk. But today we're just going to work with that uh, understanding. So demons exist, and but when, they, when you're a Christian, how do they influence you? Can they possess you? Can you become demon-possessed as a Christian? Okay. So um, demon possession is referenced a number of times in the New Testament. And that's one of the reasons why I'm going to talk about whether they exist or not, because um, it was such a huge part of Jesus' ministry. Um, but when he talked about it, he would use this word, demonizomai. I think I'm saying that right. I don't speak Greek. But um, that is the word. I'm just going to give you one. I'm not really going to talk about this scripture. I just wanted to give you one scripture that just shows you how it's used. So in Matthew 4:24, then his, Jesus, then his fame went throughout Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Okay, so he healed people who were, uh, you know, demon-possessed. That's this word, demonizomai. I don't think the word, uh, you know, I have sympathy for the translation demon-possessed, but I don't think that's the best translation. Um, at least not on, when we're talking about, uh, about this topic. I think it would be better to say demonized. I think it would still lead to confusion, but demonized is probably a better translation. And not every um, translation will translate it quite the same. It's not a word, like possession, when you say demon possession, that's something that's talking about ownership. Like you possess something. If I possess, if I possess my phone, that's my phone. I own it. Um, but and so when you say demon possession, you're talking about, well, is the demon owning you? And if we were talking that way, then I would say no. I don't think that the demon owns you. So in that way, I don't think demon possession makes sense for a Christian. Perhaps not even for a non-Christian. Um, 
I think master would probably be a better word. Uh, a, de- a Christian can't be owned by a demon. In fact, you're not your own. You don't even own you if you're a Christian. First Corinthians says you're not your own. You were bought with a price. So I don't think you even belong to yourself. So how could a demon possess you? Um, the, the translation for demonize omai is to be under the power of, to be under the mastery, to be under the power of that presence. And you can own something and have somebody else having mastery over it. So the idea of whether we're casting something off or casting something out, I don't know. Maybe I will know one day, and then I'll preach on it. But I don't know, and I don't really care all that much. I think my, my emphasis is, I think it is important to ask the question of who owns you, and, and are you under the ownership of? I think that is theoretically like maybe an important question. But when you're trying to get rid of a demon, if you're trying to get rid of the presence, whether you're casting it out of somebody or casting it off of somebody, I don't know. I think, for the most part, I think God's just going to understand what you're talking about. And I do have sympathy for both. And I don't really know what the difference practically would be in terms of how we interact with people, uh, whether you're casting something off or casting something out. Um, Let's talk about, just to give you some kind of illustrations for this uh, and how demons interact with Christians. I'm going to talk about the sheep, the sheepfold uh, in John 10. Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Uh, They will come in and out. Uh, They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So we have this picture, right, of this kind of gated area where Jesus is um, the, the door. And then it also says, uh, he who doesn't enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. So basically, the thief can get in. Sometimes. Right? It's not so much, once you're in the sheepfold, the demons are going to leave you alone. That's not kind of the reference, I think, at all. The reference is, watch how the sheep, watch how, watch who comes in, not it can't get in. Be careful to watch. In fact, because the demons can get in, it's saying to watch. It's saying to be careful. If the demons couldn't get in, why would he even talk about it? He wouldn't have to reference that at all. I'm going to give you another illustration that's not biblical. Well, it's biblical, but it's not from the Bible. Whatever. It's a, uh, another illustration. I shouldn't have said any of that. If someone has a drink, first of all, can a Christian have a drink? Have you ever known a Christian to drink? I think Natasha said on Facebook that she was having a drink for her 40th birthday. So... I think she's a Christian. Um, So people can have a drink. Jesus had a drink. This isn't going well. (laughs) Uh. Okay, so now let's say you have a Christian who drinks a lot. Okay. Can a Christian do that? I think so. Is it a good idea? I don't think so. Is it a sin? Maybe. Especially in certain amounts. But I think it happens. And if a Christian's drinking a lot, does the alcohol own them? Does the alcohol possess them? I don't think the alcohol owns the person if they've drunk a lot. But are they under the influence of something? And is the alcohol in them? That person who's under the influence of a lot of alcohol, may be a Christian, and may still do something that's completely out of their character. They may surprise themselves and everybody around them when they're under the influence of that much alcohol. And they might still, that alcohol still does not possess them, doesn't own them. 
and it's still in them. That's how I think, that's a picture that shows, I hope, how you can have all of these things happening at once. One of the scriptures I want to focus on today is Ephesians 6, which is something that's usually pretty familiar to people who are in the faith, which is kind of putting on the armor of God. Uh, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a substantial portion of it. Um, so Ephesians 6, I'm going to start at 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I'm going to skip a little bit. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. And then it says also, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I'll get to that in a minute. But I want to just, I want you to notice that most of what I just read was defensive. I mean, a belt isn't super defensive, but it's holding together a lot of defenses. I heard a talk a long time ago on Roman armor and how important the belt was for holding everything together. Shoes aren't super defensive, but if you want to stand your ground and not lose your balance and you realize when you're fighting how important your balance is, it actually is quite defensive. It's certainly not that offensive. And then you've got a breastplate, you've got a shield, you've got a helmet. Most of this is defensive. Defending against what? And it talks particularly about these flaming arrows that are coming from where? From the enemy. My main point here is just to say that the enemy is offensive. I guess you could take that two ways. The enemy is offensive. The enemy is on the offense, which is the primary thing I wanted to say. The enemy is on the offense. He's shooting arrows. If you just hold your peace and stand still, that doesn't mean you're not going to get attacked. A lot of people are afraid to do things in the faith because they're, they're going to get more attacked by the enemy. But this doesn't show a picture of don't go places because you're going to get attacked by the enemy. It shows this picture of you're standing there and these arrows are flying at you and you're just supposed to stand. Please stand. Do all of these things so that you can stand. Just standing as a Christian is, seems to be quite challenging because you're being attacked. And it's not the non-Christian here that's being attacked. It's the Christian. Christians need to be able to deal with the demonic, not just in the non-Christian, but we need to be able to deal with the demonic attack on ourselves. The influence. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was led there. That's a whole thing. Even Jesus was attacked. Why do demons attack us? Why do they want mastery over us? I believe that they want mastery over us because they want our authority. They want to act through us. And I believe that the primary way that they do this is through, is through lying. Now, I'm not going to make this an exhaustive talk on every way that demons influence people and every way that we can fight them, but I want to focus on a couple. And the main one that I see in my life is through lies. I'm dealing, I'm a psychologist, and, and as a psychologist, and I'm sure all of you would, would see this as well in your lives, see people operating under lies all the time. Now, actually, this wasn't quite, this wasn't a natural thing. I'm a very agreeable person, and I agree with people before I even know what I'm agreeing to. Somebody says, oh, you know, this and this and this, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, and then it's only later that I come back and or maybe even if I, I don't, often don't think about it, but then if I do, it's like, well, that's actually not quite right. I just like to be agreeable. That's actually a personality trait. I'm an agreeable person, but as a psychologist, I've had to always, I've had to learn to think critically about what people are saying and believing and what's actually going on behind those things in order to 
be able to see the lie. Because that's one of the primary therapies that we do as therapists. It's called cognitive behavior therapy. Basically, it's listening to people, identifying lies, and challenging them. So I see people operating under lies all the time. And over time, I've gotten better at seeing them faster. It's funny. In the beginning, it was like, I'm just going to listen to you because I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> that was my defense as a therapist, right? I'm going to learn to listen so then I don't have any pressure. Because that's something, just in itself. And then I was getting better, and I was probably doing better, you know, in terms of my timing. It was when I realized that the person was operating under a lie, that's when I would point it out. It was usually the right time to point it out. Now, I'm getting to the point where I identify the lie a lot sooner than I should be talking about the lie. And then I get into trouble by jumping ahead too far. And it's like, well, this is probably happening, and that's probably happening, and that's probably happening. And the person's like, sometimes I can look like a magician now. You know, I can kind of like, uh, I can like pull a rabbit out of my hat. And uh, sometimes that works for me, especially in a first session when they have to learn whether they can trust me or not. It's like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I can pull a rabbit out of my hat. Um, but oftentimes, you have to be careful how you, how you identify the lie. Because the goal isn't to identify it. The goal is for the person to renounce it. So people are operating under these lies all the time. I'll just give you an example of one. One of the place where I, places where I most dealt with the demonic in terms of like an obvious demonic presence was when I was working in Stony Mountain Prison. I was a psychologist to inmates. And there, if you showed any sign that you were somewhat open to talking about demonic or demons and that you would actually listen and not just laugh at the person, they would tell you stories. And I never met somebody who wasn't a believer in demons in Stony Mountain. There might have been some that just didn't kind of answer me. But there was a preponderance, there was a great number of people, percentage, who actually believed in demons there. And they had quite the stories. They had stories about other people. And they had stories about themselves, about waking up and being choked, having presences in their rooms, and things like that. There was one person there who had done horrible things in his life and had just a horrible perspective in general. And he was one of my most like, kind, knowledgeable, and frustrating clients in the prison. It felt every time that he was so close to actually being able to make, take a step towards faith. Because he'd talk about faith. And he'd talk about hypocrites in Christianity. And I would empathize with how many Christians are hypocrites. Um, and, but his primary issue was that he didn't believe that he could be forgiven for what he had done. He just couldn't move past that. He couldn't escape the reality or the, the, the lie that he could not be forgiven because of he had done such horrible, horrible things. And so I, I remember one day I was so excited. I was like, okay, basically prepared a mini sermon for my therapy session, right? And I was talking about David. I was like, there was a man who was basically a murderer and, and almost a rapist. And I forget everything David did. The list is actually quite long. And, and he was called, you know, a man after God's own heart. And it just, it didn't work at all. It was so frustrating. <laughs> I don't have a good ending to that story. <clears throat> People operate under lies. Jesus isn't real. Jesus can't heal. I don't need other believers. Demons aren't real. I'll give you a, a personal one that just happened to me last week. And I dealt with it at our prayer meeting on Wednesday. And uh, it was, we had, a, we had a, a meeting here where, I mean, the Holy Spirit really showed up for me. We were talking about money. And like most of the whole church was lined up here in the front. And uh, for whatever that means, something happened. And after that, this lie came into my head. It's like, okay, that's great. But wait, that, that can't happen every Sunday. Like, 
can't happen every Sunday. I don't know why that couldn't happen every Sunday, but it, it felt true to me. It's like I have to do something to help this be like a regular Sunday, so it's like not over, I don't know what, the, I don't even know. It's hard to identify the reasoning, but it was just like it's too much, maybe too much pressure on me, maybe too much pressure on everybody to like have to have that happen, or it would be too intense. It's just too intense. So we need to kind of like have a flow. Maybe we can do that once a month. Let's do that once a month. We'll have like a really, you know, Holy Spirit sermon, you know, and I'll really call people up. But I won't really call people up on other Sundays, but on those Sundays, I'll really call people up. If it doesn't make sense, that's okay. It's not supposed to. So anyway, on that Wednesday, I was like, this is a lie. This is a lie. And if I let this go, it's going to get demonically empowered. It's going to be an opening for a lukewarm church. <clears throat> Could you imagine Jesus like, going out and preaching and saying, you know what, today we're going to have a little bit more of a normal time. <laughs> we're going to do a normal one today. We're not going to have the Holy Spirit be here that much. One of the most common lies that I run into is that you're worthless. And I have to say, it's actually pretty challenging sometimes for me to, to work on that worthlessness that people experience when they're not a Christian. It's way easier for people. It's, the bondage around worthlessness is still in Christians, but it's not as pervasive or difficult to move. The other one that's really challenging to move is bitterness. Bitterness is really challenging. I really have very little to go on. When somebody comes in and they are really struggling with bitterness and their relationships are falling apart and things like that, and I'm there and I'm sitting there and I'm going to try to help them forgive, and I've already kind of tested the waters around forgiveness, and it's like, it's so funny. It's like people come in, okay, this is my time to vent. People come in and they sit down and they're like, I want you to do this. You get me to the other side of this, like, whatever, problem. And then they say, and you're not allowed to touch this, and you're not allowed to talk about that, and you're not allowed to do this, basically. But I still want you to get me over to the other side. Anyway. So I started church. <laughs> <laughs> now I can talk about it. Yeah. yeah, so if you're in bitterness, and I don't have forgiveness... The only thing I have is maybe the person didn't hurt you that bad. Or maybe it's your fault and you actually don't need to forgive. Or maybe it's like not a big deal. So they, a lot of psychologists, they go into minimizing, like it's not that big of a deal. Or they go into like you saw it wrong, which is kind of like minimizing. It's another, basically it's minimizing. And uh, that's not great. That's not great. And there I am, kind of like, and my perspective is like, yeah, that's horrible. Jesus was saying, you know, I don't say that, but like, even if you think about something, it's like doing it, you know, it's horrible. And, but that's okay, because you have a way I can't talk about that. Right? So it's this really tough thing to fight lies without the truth, which is Jesus. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy. The devil wants you to believe a lie. A deceitful spirit will come and give you a doctrine that's not true, a belief. Christians are targeted. Demons want our authority. Okay. Now, the next big scripture I want to talk about is from Genesis 4. If you ever want to figure something out, go to Genesis. <clears throat> so, Cain and Abel are there. Adam knew Eve, and there they are. They've got kids. Where should I start? Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And, in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So this is Genesis 4. Did I say that? Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel 
and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. That makes me think of the spirit room. Um, we have a volunteer there, her name's Christy, and that was, that's her main word. She would love to sit at the welcome desk because she would watch people come into the spirit room, which is where we prophesy and pray for people. And she would say their countenance when they come in. Some of them are like sweating and shaking. Some of them are like pacing around in the lobby. Like, Am I going to go in? And that, that would be her word. She would say, and then when they'd leave, their countenance would just be glowing. They'd be so, it would be so different. Well, Cain's countenance had fallen. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Okay, so there's a few things to say here. Basically, then Cain killed Abel. Okay. <coughs> sin has a desire for you. When did sin ever have a desire? Like, we're personifying <coughs> sin here. So how would you have sin have a desire? I think it's demons. If you have sin, that, I mean, sin is an act, right? Like, it's a mistake. But if you have a sin that has a desire, it has a personality, it has an intention. That's a demon. Demonic. Sin, the demonic, has a desire for you. It can rule over you. What did he say? What did God say? And, it, uh, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. What does that mean? That means be careful, otherwise it will rule over you. Don't let it influence you. You need to influence it. So sin has a desire. There's the demonic, and it wants to rule over you which is basically what we were talking about in the beginning with uh, demonize omai, which is that it wants to master you. It's lying at the door. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. What's a door? A door is a place that you can, it's a thing that you can open, it's a thing that you can close. It's a choice. It's lying there, you can let it in, you can keep it out. It wants to rule over you. You have a choice. Well, I think from the story you can see that Cain opened the door. And that sin ruled over him. And it gained Cain's authority. And what did it do with Cain's authority? It killed Abel. Cain had authority on the earth. He had authority. God had given him a body. It had given him power over people, the ability to kill, the ability to love. And he gave that authority to sin. Okay, so this is actually a question for you. You can yell it out. What was the lie that Cain was operating under? I'm going to read it again. Now you know what the question is. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, do well. Sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, and you should, but you should rule over it. What was, when Cain killed Abel, what was the lie that he believed? Unacceptable? Unacceptable. God loved Abel more than Cain. God loved Abel more than Cain. I'm worthless. I'm worth less than Abel. That's what I was thinking. Is there anything else that you guys had pop into your mind? It could be multiple lies or multiple versions. I don't know. I didn't really have a... Why was it unacceptable to God? Why was it unacceptable? Yeah. There's a question there. Yeah. Why was it unacceptable? Was it me? Maybe he just doesn't like me. That's how I would think. That's how I would think he would answer that. Like his sacrifice was unacceptable. Yeah. Why was his sacrifice unacceptable? He'd be asking that question. Yeah. 
Okay. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Now we've been talking about people and how there's lies and there's doors and there's authority. But this is something that I want us to deal with at Maplecrest. This is where I want us to go as well. I want us to save people, don't get me wrong. That's what the spirit room's about and so many things. But I also want us to save society. I want us to save cities. God calls us to disciple nations. And I believe that there's different types of authority out there. <coughs> that uh, there's demonic principalities. And I believe that societies, in addition to how Cain believed a lie, that he was worthless, I believe that societies can actually believe a lie. And I believe that, with, that depending on the lie that that society believes, demons will have different types of power in that place. So then you get these different places where demons operate differently based on how completely a society believes a lie and what type of lie they're believing. I am tempted to go through different nations and talk about the lies that they believe, but I just think that would be a little too much for us. But I would let you, I'll leave it to your imagination to go through different countries of the earth, and Canada included, and think about what lie does this country believe? And how has that influenced the demonic authority and the actions that that country takes against its people, against Christians, against God in general? And the reason that I want to talk about that is because I believe that the primary way to get rid of a demon is to, is to give it the truth. Now, the best way to do that is to talk about the truth, capital T truth, which is Jesus. I am the truth, right? But I also believe that on a lesser level, and I don't want to take away from that, there is the ability to pry the devil's fingers off of somebody or something by having them operate in the truth of Jesus without even them knowing the name of Jesus or believing in the name of Jesus. Now that might upset you, I don't know. I'm not wanting to take away from Jesus at all, but to say that he's so powerful that if you were to have a person believe in the world in the same way that Jesus did, that demons would have less freedom in that place. I want you to think about this. What would it be like to live under Babylon or under a pharaoh versus to live under King David? Those societies are completely different. Are there non-Christians or people who don't believe in the God of David in Jerusalem at that time? I would guess yes. But the demonic hold on that place would be completely different if David was ruling than if you were in Pharaoh's place and you were trying to be a Christian. It would be completely different demonic reality in that place. The soup that you would be swimming in would be different. And I don't mean this in a very, it can be, and you can start to feel it in a kind of a spiritual sense, like the spiritual discernment as you're walking around. And by that, I just mean kind of knowing in your knower and kind of like there's a feeling that in the place. Natasha's good at this. She primarily experiences just as being emotionally upset because she goes to certain places like, I don't feel good and I don't know why. Um, so there's that. But there's also just like the laws change. Like the laws are different in different places. In some places, Christians are killed, and that's because they believe a lie about Jesus. So you don't have to even go to those kind of knowing in your knower kind of spiritual senses. You can go into like, well, this country believes that Christians are, are horrible, and so they're killing them. So the demons, are they upset about that? The demons are happy that they get to kill Christians in that place because it's written in the law that they're allowed to. Whereas in another country, we can worship freely because it's not written that Christians are horrible, at least it's not written, at least not yet. The devil is seeking authority, and if he can get a person's authority and kill another person, he's going to celebrate. But if he can get a nation's authority, if he can get a government's authority, a president's authority, if he can get the government, the, the power of an army, that's another level of authority that he can get. Revelation 21.13 I know your works, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, goes on, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
God is going to realize and take into account, we were talking about relative judgment last time, he knows where you live, and he knows the spiritual reality that my presence is in that place. He knows that it's going to be more challenging to live in some countries of the world than to live in others. If you were to be a Christian and be living under David's, King David and the height of his rule, it's going to be a different type of judgment on your life, on how you live that out, than if you were living under Pharaoh. He gets that you're not going to be able to do the same kind of things. I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. And yet you held fast to my name. It's counted towards you that you were able to hold in that demonic presence, under that demonic principality of darkness. And the reason I want to talk about this is because I want Maplecrest, one of my dreams, I'm a missionary, one of my <coughs> dreams, I want to be a shepherd, I want to be a father, and I want to do that well with the people. And I want to disciple a city, and I want to disciple a nation. I remember somebody, we were in the Bible Society, and um, I was talking and laughing. And from my laugh, I think, she said, the person who worked there said, hey, are you Cyrus? I knew that laugh, because she heard me on the radio. <laughs> and she said, I knew you were a Christian. I never say I'm a Christian on the radio. I rarely say it in my practice. But she said, I knew you were a Christian, just from the way that you answered those questions. I want to disciple a nation. I want to pry the devil's fingers off of this city, one truth at a time. I want to make it easier for somebody who's, hey, in this society, I'm almost living like a Christian anyway. Maybe I'll just take that next step and believe in Jesus. Rather than to be in a place where, oh my goodness, you want me to be a Christian? I have to completely change my life. I have to completely alienate everybody. I have to become uh, basically an orphan without a family in order to become a Christian. I want to pry those fingers off so people are almost already there. I want this to be a kingdom like David, where it's like, you know what, why aren't you a Christian? Didn't you see who the, who the government is? Everybody here believes. Everybody's living in the truth of the, of the gospel. Don't you know who gave us that? And it's like, oh, that's where it came from. Well, I'll become a Christian then. That's what I want it to be. I want the atmosphere in this city to be under, king, under the king of Jesus. I want the laws of this city to be under the king, under the authority of Jesus and not a demonic presence. I want it to be easy to raise children here. I want it to be natural for a child to grow up here and say, well, I'm a Christian, what else would you be? And not be like, oh my goodness, I have to give up all of my friends. I want it to be hard to listen to a demon in Winnipeg. Anna said something funny recently. She was, um, we were having a prayer night downstairs. And Anna's bedroom's upstairs. And she, I think she had to, she wanted to come down to see us or something, maybe go to the bathroom, I don't know. But she said, and I closed the door. And she asked, why did you close the door? Well, it was dark in my room. And I didn't want the darkness to come downstairs. So I closed my door. So the darkness wouldn't get out and bother you guys. So sweet. And wrong. <laughs> How do we fight against the darkness? Do we close the door? We do. That's kind of the first half. I shouldn't have said it that way. Yeah, we do close the door. Ephesians 6 at the end. We went through Ephesians 6. This is the armor of God. At the end it says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When it says the word of God in the Bible, you have to be watching what the Greek is there. The sword of the Spirit. So the Spirit is wielding a sword. What's the sword that the Spirit's wielding? The Word of God. And what's the Word of God here? It's the Rhema Word of God. So there's the Logos and the Rhema, just if you don't know. Logos is kind of like the Bible, basically. Like 
the word of God. And Raymond is like, what are you emphasizing right now, Lord? What are you saying right now? So the Raymond can't conflict with the Logos. It has to be Christian. It has to make sense. But God emphasizes different things at different times. And so what is the way to bring a sword, to be, a, to be an offensive Christian? Again, in both maybe meanings of the word. To be offensive to people, but also to, to take out the darkness. You can protect yourself by closing the door. But if you want to go and if you want to open up a place and bring the light, you want to operate in the rainbow word of the Lord. It's not easy, and there's no one, two, three on how to bring God into a room. It's different, and God is going to emphasize different things at different times. So you have to be connected to the Spirit, because this, it's not your sword, it's the Spirit's sword, and it's changing. You have to watch what the rhema word of the Lord is in that moment. What is God asking you to do right now? And you always have to remember that the rhema word of the Lord is consistent with the Logos. It's consistent with the full word of the Lord. So to give you an example, if we wanted to bring the spirit here, you could walk around the building and blow a trumpet. You could anoint the doors with oil. You could make a declaration. If we wanted to get rid of, if we wanted to heal my friend, we could dump a bunch of water on him and give him hypothermia. You have to know what the Lord wants you to do in that moment in order to be able to get rid of the demon in order to be able to move it. And that's one of the reasons I think the spirit room is so great, is because in that moment, all we're, all we're doing, our emphasis is on giving people their ring of word. This is how you can fight. This is who you are. This is what the Lord is emphasizing for you right now. We have to know the spirit in order to know what the spirit is saying right now. I don't want to know what the Spirit, I do. I don't want to know only what the Spirit was saying yesterday. I want to know what the Spirit is saying today. I don't want to just know what the Spirit was saying at the beginning of the service. I want to know what the Spirit is saying at the end. You always have to be connected. Okay, so I'm just going to go through this again, just so you can cover a lot of ground. just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. <clears throat> Demons are offensive, and they are offensive against Christians. They are on the offense. We have to put on the armor of the Lord because, Christ, because demons are actually out to get us. Demons can't possess us, they can't own us, but they can be masters over us. And they would do that primarily through lies. They tell us lies, and the lies give them an opening. The lies make a place for them. And they do that because they want our authority. They want to operate through us, through our ability to act. Our authority as a person, just like how Cain <laughs> killed Abel, or our authority in our connection with the society, in having authority over an entire people, by being able to write laws. And in order to fight, one way to fight, that I wanted to emphasize, was by bringing the truth, which is opposite to the lies. And it's not just the general truth. It's exactly what is the Lord emphasizing right now, to break that lie in that person's life, to break that lie in that society, to break that lie in this service. So when we were praying, and I was talking about how, you know, we had that great service, and everybody was all Holy Spirit-filled, and I don't know, something happened, or giving birth to something. And I need to moderate that for us. I need to kind of make sure that we're okay and have a little bit more Holy Spirit here and a little bit less Holy Spirit so we can have more Holy Spirit once a month. My main way of dealing with that was to be listening to what the Lord was saying to me in that moment, and that's what he was emphasizing. I mean, I have believed so many lies. I believe so many lies. Lies that get in the way of my ability to heal people, set people free. Lies that prevent me from loving people the way I really want to love them. And in that moment, the Lord was showing me that lie. And so that was the lie that I confessed. And said, Lord, 
This is not something that I want to moderate. If you want to have a service where you're working quietly in people's hearts, that's fine. And if you want to have a service where everybody is laying on the ground, that's your business. And I don't want to get in the way. And if you want to do that every Sunday or every night for the rest of my life, that's fine. It's your church, Lord. So I confessed it. And that rhema word of the Lord can break that power in my life, and he can break it in yours. Let's pray. Lord, you are so amazing. Just coming to mind, when you went to lock up the devil, or when you will go to lock up the devil, you didn't have to come and do it yourself. You sent one angel. Go lock him up. It's over. He might not have even been the biggest angel. Satan's not here because he's so mighty. Satan's here because we said yes. Lord, I don't want to say yes anymore. Lord, just send your authority. Help us to say yes to you so we can drive away. We can live free. So we're going to worship for a while. The way worship works here is that you get to do what you want. And um, just feel free to express yourself, to kind of enter into the presence of the Lord. You can stand, you can sit, you can dance, you can lie down. You've got lots of room. You can go to the bathroom. You don't have a break. So do what you need to do. And then we're going to come back together, I'm going to come back up, and we're going to have a ministry time at the end. And that's something that's for all of us. We're, we're going to be praying into what the Spirit wants to do. Um, and, uh, and we'll pray that the Lord... So as you're, as you're praying now, pray that the Lord meets us now, and then and uh, pray for what the Lord is saying to you, what the ring word of the Lord is to you right now, as, as we go into that time and as we leave here too.